Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. This Thursday night, we meet the Canadian who's now the continent's number one so-called word nerd after winning the North American Scrabble Championships last week. And find out what the key to success was over a triple word score. We hear from a Canadian working for the World Food Program in South Sudan that now the ongoing conflict there, climate change, and now the war in Ukraine are driving the world's youngest country deeper into a food crisis. The Global Mail's John Ibbotson joins us to talk about the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race now that it's into its home stretch and whether anyone has any chance of beating presumed frontrunner Pierre Polier. Those who monitor the online abuse of children are sounding the alarm after stats show a spike in the number of cases of sextortion up more than 100% over July of last year. And the vast majority of the victims now are teenage boys and young men targeted for blackmail and financial gain. But first, Canada will resume training Ukrainian troops as part of Operation Unifier, paused back in the winter ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We find out what difference it will make in the ongoing battle for that country. But first up, one UK tabloid today, always prone to a bit of hyperbole, described it as Putin suffers hammer blow as UK and Canada team up in major boost to Ukraine's military. What were they talking about? Canada announced today that we will resume training Ukrainian soldiers in what had certainly been the shining light of our commitment to Ukraine in recent years. The mission known as Operation Unifier has already helped train more than 30,000 Ukrainian soldiers before all Canadian troops were withdrawn ahead of Russia's attack over the winter. Now, Defence Minister Anita Anand says Canada is sending military trainers to the UK to help teach Ukrainians how to fight invading Russian forces. She says up to 225 members of the Canadian Armed Forces will eventually be based in the UK for an initial period of four months. They will work alongside counterparts from Britain, of course, the Netherlands and New Zealand in training Ukrainian troops on the basics of soldiering. When we paused our military training and capacity building operations in Ukraine under Operation Unifier in early February, I made a commitment to resume these operations whenever and wherever possible. The activities of our Canadian Armed Forces are going to be uh, relating to frontline combat, weapons handling, first aid, field craft, patrol tactics, and include the law of armed conflict, which is a mandatory course in the training session. Defence Minister Anita Anand there. The first of up to three training cohorts is scheduled to depart for a military base in southeast England on August the 12th. British forces began training Ukrainian soldiers to help in their fight against Moscow last month, with up to a total of 10,000 recruits arriving in the UK for specialist military training already this summer. Well, joining me now with more on this is Steve Sademan. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University and Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Well, the Daily Express is always one to uh, exaggerate a little bit, but Putin suffers hammer blow. It seems like quite the statement. But this is certainly good news for for the Ukrainian military. Sure. I I think what it really reflects is a realization by everybody this war is not going to end anytime too soon. So these kinds of long-term efforts will have a payoff down the road, but it only makes sense if people expect that this war is going to go on. So it's it's both good news and bad news. I think it's a good news in terms of what, what the Ukrainians need, but it's a recognition that, that we're not going to see a resolution of this conflict anytime too soon. Yeah, I guess in this sense, I mean, this is not something that will have immediate benefits, right? This is looking ahead months. Yeah, the idea of this is to train the next generation of soldiers. So it's not the folks who are currently on the front lines being pulled back to get additional training. It's the Ukrainians have been recruiting uh, you know, new soldiers, and 
they're going to get these skills that will help them, uh, you know, survive the battlefield. Uh, Minister Nanda mentioned uh, first aid. This is one of the things that the Ukrainians have done much better than the Russians. The Russians in the first few months, there was a lot of stories about how, you know, they were essentially losing soldiers to, to wounds that could have been, you know, dealt with. But the Ukrainians have committed, partly because they, you know, their troops are a scarce resource, but they've committed more effort to, to keeping their troops alive and, and send them back into the, into the war if they can. And so that, that, that's one of the kinds of things that, that we, we've been, we're training them before the war, and so we're taking the same kinds of training packages that we were doing before the war and doing it again just a little further away. I mean, when I was uh, watching what Ukraine had on the front lines back in the Donbass in 2014, it was far from a professional army at that point, or at least parts of it were far from a professional army. It feels like Operation Unifier, to some extent, though, has made a big difference in its in the professionalization, or at least the you know the continuing professionalization of Ukraine's army. And this uh, was just a continuation of that. I think that's true. I, I don't want to give us too much credit because there are a lot of other actors involved. The, the British were training uh, the Ukrainians. The Americans were training the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians uh, really, I mean, a lot of the responsibility for their success is in the Ukrainian hands. They, they did, they learned from 2014, and they were fighting from 2014 to 2022, and they didn't promote generals who were just friends of Zelensky. They promoted people who were successful in the battlefield, and that's not inevitable. And so one of the hidden features of all this is that they solidified their civilian control of the military. They improved their Ministry of Defense so that way it was not just staffed with military officers, but with civilians who, who uh, were able to make the right decisions and, and prepare the, the, them for what they thought saw as inevitable, and they turned out they were right. So what we did was we made a contribution to that effort, and uh, certainly the Ukrainians value that, and they're investing you know, something like 10,000 soldiers they're going to send off to the U.K. to get this kind of training. So they, they see value in it. Uh, from Russia's perspective, I mean, does this in some senses um, help maintain the idea that there is a united front here supporting Ukraine? Well, I think we, you know, besides the minor, you know, you know, differences here and there, I think we've maintained a pretty united front all the way through where, you know, we, we have announcements every couple of weeks from a variety of countries about new weapon systems or additional ammunition and all the rest. And then we have Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Uh, most countries ratified very, very quickly. The United States just had their, their ratification vote either today or yesterday. And, and Canada was amongst the first to, to ratify. So I think w there's a whole lot of unity that they weren't expecting. And I don't, I have, we haven't really seen any holes in this, but this is you know, it helps reinforce that, certainly. Uh, Canada, I mean, it, it feels like we don't have a whole lot to offer Ukraine. I mean, I think from the beginning, we realized that our weapons stores are pretty bare. We don't have much to offer in that way. Uh, we've been trying to offer financial uh, aid and so forth. But training troops seems to be one of the things Canada can do here. That's right. That We have a good record of doing it, uh, that our troops have been training other countries' troops for years. But uh, particularly with Ukraine. We had eight years of experience, more or less, seven or eight years of experience before the war started. Uh, and they saw value in this. That the, that is, the Ukrainians see value in it. So I, I, I and the British are, want to work with us on it. So they recognize our contribution. So this is what we can do. You know, we, we don't have the same sort of storehouses that the Americans have. We don't have HIMARS systems lying around that we can ship over. And even those, the Americans only shipped over like 14. Um, but we've given what we could, and maybe we'll go back through our armories and find additional artillery batteries or, or whatnot. But this has added value, that they need to replenish their troops for the long war. 
and this kind of training can help them do that. Any concerns at all? Any concerns with the timeline? Any concerns with the commitment? Not really. I, I, the, the big surprise to me was that I was in, happening in Britain. I, w- I would assume that Operation Unifier was going to start again at some point, maybe in Poland or someplace close by. Um, but, you know, we've operated in Britain. We've operated with the Brits before, so that's not a, not a real issue. And it's, there's no way that you – know, it's highly unlikely that the Russians would do anything to retaliate against this because that would be a, a massive escalation. So this is a really low – it would have been low risk for us to do it in Poland or, or, or Hungary or Romania. It's even lower risk doing it in, in, in Britain. And, uh, you know, the Russians might levy some more sanctions against us, but we've already antagonized them a lot, so I, I don't really see it moving the needle much there. Uh, the big thing at the end of the day is you know, the one thing that we worry about when we're training people is who we're training. And uh, so there was some discussion before about whether we were training units uh, in Ukraine that had histories or symbols or whatever that was tied to the far right. Um, I don't know if there's going to be vetting of these individuals, uh, so that way we're not getting people who are from the far right. Um, so that that's the one risk. Uh, but there's far better civilian control of these folks than, let's say, the, the Iraqis we were training. When we were in Iraq training people, you know, there were a lot of people, you know, there was a question of what they would do after our, they got our training. That was a huge question. Um, and the Iraqi government was using their army in ways that were was often pretty inappropriate and, and pretty awful. Uh, whereas in this case, the Ukrainians are not going to be sending these soldiers to do anything besides fight the Russians. They, they just don't have any time on their hands to do any kind of side gigs like oppress, you know, ethnic groups within Ukraine. So I, I think that risk is, is very minimal. Yeah, it seems it seems like the risk, at least the political risk here is pretty low. Coming up, um, speaking with Stephen Sademan, he's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. We're talking about uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand's announcement today that Operation Unifier, as it's known, that used to take place in eastern Ukraine, uh, ended uh, temporarily when uh, Canadian troops left just prior to Russia's invasion of that country, will resume in Britain in about three weeks. They're going to start sending Ukrainian soldiers over there for training. This is a British-led, but uh, Canada is taking part as well um, and expecting uh, perhaps up to three cohorts of Ukrainian soldiers to receive this training. As uh, Stephen pointed out, this is a reflection of the fact that uh, all sides now believe this war will continue, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about that. What does the next six months look like? Uh, because this war is shifting and changing and continues to. Uh, we'll look at that after this. Uh, if we return the turbine and gas flows actually return to higher levels, that would be a very good outcome. But at the end of the day, if we return the turbines and that did not affect gas flows, it essentially is calling Putin's bluff. He cannot blame Canada. He cannot blame uh, Western Europe. Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson there in front of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee today. Two federal cabinet ministers, including Defence Minister or uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, rather faced questions today about Canada's decision to return those six turbines to Germany with an exemption to Russian sanctions. The turbines belong to Russian state-owned energy for a giant Gazprom. They're part of a natural gas pipeline that supplies Germany with fuel. Conservative MPs uh, on uh, the committee questioned Wilkinson and Jolie about whether the exemption weakens the global sanctions regime and indirectly funds the Russian war in Ukraine. Um, I guess this half hour is Stephen Sabin from Carleton University. Uh, the specifics of that controversy aside, uh, this ability for Russia to continue to use energy to fund this war, how important a factor does that remain now? Well, the Russian economy is 
you know, based on very few uh, money-making enterprises. And, and energy is obviously at the top of the list. Uh, the war has uh, increased the price of energy, so they've been able to pay the, their bills, more or less. Uh, the challenge is not really right now. The challenge is next winter when their leverage goes up vis-a-vis the Europeans because things will get cold and, and the Europeans will want to get their gas. And they've made a series of choices over the past few years that have made things harder themselves. Uh, only this past week or so, you've seen the Germans finally start to think a little bit about not scrapping their nuclear power plants, which they, you know, they, they responded pretty hastily um, after the uh, emergency, the uh, accident in Japan in 2011, to close down their nuclear power plants. But that made them more dependent on the Russians, and and now with climate change suggesting that that might have been a bad choice anyway, it's, it's you know becoming more dependent on the Russians is is always a bad idea. So I think I think this is going to get a lot of attention. I don't know what the Germans are going to do ultimately about this. Yeah, when you look ahead over the next six months, you get the sense that Ukraine are going to continue to try to push uh, to try and make some gains back in the south. Uh, but we're heading into what feels like, you know, into the fall, into the winter. Once again, things are going to start to shift. And you get the sense the Russians are going to try to squeeze the West over energy, as you're mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, and that Ukraine will try to will try to make some gains now, at least attempt to make some gains in areas where Russia is stretched. Uh, it, it feels like this war is, is not going anywhere and it could get worse again soon. Well, the interesting thing is, is the arms race between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians had a lot of capability, but the Ukrainians have gotten some stuff lately, such as the HIMARS system I mentioned earlier, that they've used very intelligently. They've been very, very smart about using this scarce resource to take out Russian ammunition dumps, and that has made it very hard for the Russians to play their big card, which is they've had more artillery, uh, which they've used very, very uh, bluntly to try to seize some territory. So... In the days ahead, it may be harder for the Russians to use that tool, and we may see the Ukrainians take back more territory, particularly in the south, which should allow them to have a better grasp of their of their waterfront, which might mean that they can export more grain. Um, I do think that the Russians are at their very limits uh, in terms of their ability to expand, and they've ne- they still haven't shown any real cleverness about how to fight this war. And I don't think they're getting smarter about it. They've learned some of it from some of their mistakes. Uh, but the Ukrainians have been one step ahead of them or two steps ahead of them most of the way. And I don't expect that to change. And I imagine the news today of the further training just shows the Ukrainian military that are still committed to uh, to gaining the, at least keeping an upper hand against what seems to be a pretty uh, scattered and, and disorganized Russian military right now, which has come as a surprise, obviously. Well, the Russian military has been, you know, it goes back again to something I harp on, which is how well are they controlled by the civilians? And we've had people being promoted in the Russian military based on their loyalty to Putin. uh, And they've been allowed to be very corrupt, which we saw the consequences of that, where the Russians went to war in February with not not the best equipment and not with the best training, because a lot of that uh, material was siphoned off to enrich people. Whereas the Ukrainians for the past eight years have been really training very hard for it. They made a lot of the smart decisions as the war started not to lose a lot of their assets the first few days. And what's striking these days is you still have a Ukrainian Air Force flying and you still have a Russian Air Force not willing to fly that much over over Ukraine. And I think if you ask most experts at the outset of the war, they would have expected the Russians to, to establish air supremacy. 
that's the American way of war, and I guess we projected a bit much, but they haven't been able to do that, and that's allowed the Ukrainians to do all kinds of things to make make the Russians' lives miserable. And uh, the Russians don't have anything really to fight for here. Uh, they're they're fighting for a war of expansion. A lot of the people who are fighting don't, don't realize why they're at war, whereas the Ukrainians are fighting to defend their homes. And the Russians have done everything to t- to tell the Ukrainians that they need to, you know, fight for every yard because the Russians have engaged in rape, they've engaged in murder, and they've deported people back to Russia. So it, they, they've only done everything they could to increase the will for the Ukrainians to fight. Yeah, the heart, the battle for hearts and minds has clearly been something lost uh, on the Russian side. Stephen Sandman, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Everyone loves a Cinderella story, even when it comes to something like a Scrabble tournament. And that's the best way to describe Montrealer Michael Fagan's big win at the North American Scrabble Championships last week in Baltimore. Scrabble enthusiasts from 42 states and nine countries converged in Maryland for the board game's North American Championships. It had been canceled in 2020 and 2021 by the pandemic. Brings together 290 players from Canada. Fagan was one of seven players from the Montreal Scrabble Club. It was his fourth trip to these championships. He was a long shot heading in. He was seated at the bottom half of his division, 28th out of 42 players. If you were playing NCAA brackets, that would be pretty low. Not to mention this, he almost didn't go. You see, his direct flight to Baltimore, speaking of something we've talked about a lot on this show, his direct flight to Baltimore had been canceled. His mom said, don't bother. You're going to have to, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hassle. But he said, it's the only, this is the big one I need to go. So he took a 10 hour bus ride to New York City from Montreal, followed that up by a three hour train trip to Baltimore. And lo and behold, he made it all the way to the best of five final where he met the number two ranked player on the continent. His opponent had said earlier that he had spent roughly eight hours a day for the past month preparing, studying a list of more than 10, 100,000 approved words. Up for grabs, $10,000 US for the first prize. And of course, bragging rights as the continent's so-called top word nerd. And that title now belongs to Montrealer Michael Fagan, who joins me now. Welcome to the show. Congratulations. Thank you, man. Yeah, it must still be sinking in a little bit. How are you feeling? Very happy, very excited, very thrilled, but also very surprised, especially as you said, being one of the seated in the lower half. I certainly wasn't expecting to win the tournament or even come close, but somehow I managed to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, you've played in lots of tournaments at this point, including, I think this was your fourth of these. Uh, what went right for you uh, in this one? I think there's a lot that comes down to being a good Scrabble player. And overall, I'd probably say it's about three parts skill, two parts luck, and one part attitude. And sometimes <laughs> when you have it all, the results can be really good. There's also like what happens with your opponents, because it's just as important for you to do as well as you can as this to try and stop your opponents from doing well so it's you don't want to think of the game like solitaire but think of it as like you're trying to just score more points than the opponent by the end of the game that's how you win the game and that's the ultimate goal to do that as many times as possible yeah but how does it work in a tournament like that because it must be quite a bit of pressure you're playing against very good players um what is it like to go into one and and sort of how do you keep your cool playing so many uh sort of people who are either as good or perhaps better than you are at it I mean, I guess like it's a process and having, I started playing at Club Scrabble when I was 
14, and even before then, I'd play casual games with my mother. A club, we have a weekly club that meets every Wednesday at around 7 p.m. It's in Cote St. Luke, so I'd encourage you to check it out. And you don't have to be an expert at all in the game. They're very welcoming of new players. They can give you like what's called a cheat sheet that has lots of useful words on it. So you won't feel as like intimidated or overwhelmed. And we have players in the club of all levels, so they're not going to pair you with me if you're the first if it's your first time that just wouldn't be fun for anyone i don't think no um i guess it's really a question and you've said this that it's as much about it's all about words but it's also about math yep in fact this might surprise people but there's a lot of math in the game first like you have to figure out like how many points your word is going to score and look at like other options as well and figure out how many points are going to score. There's also like a probability element because you don't know for sure what tiles you're going to pick from the bag. You don't know what your opponent's letters are. So it's about like calculating like what are the chances of them having like a certain letter or like a certain play available. So there's definitely a lot of math that goes into the game, but also like there's a lot of spatial awareness that's important and like you have to be able to like see the plays on the board. You might have to like rearrange the letters on your rack to find a word. You also want to look where on the board can you score like the most points. Are there certain spots that are conducive to scoring? So like when you make your plays, you you want to take all that into account. And also, as I said earlier, like try and make it harder for your opponent. So sometimes like if there's a good spot on the board that could be used by both players scoring a lot of points. Maybe it's just best to take that spot, even if you don't have a great play there, just to make sure your opponents can't go there. Yeah, you mentioned it's not solitaire, right? Um, I understood, I understand that one of the things that really pushed you to victory is you essentially uh, hit two bingos, as they're called, in, in those final rounds, a bit like a hole-in-one, right, to some extent, or maybe an eagle, to use a golf uh, a golf analogy. What is a bingo, and, and how rare is it to hit two playing at that level? So in Scrabble, you have seven letters on your rack at all times, except when the bag is empty. And if you use all seven letters in a single turn, you get 50 bonus points. And that's what's known as a bingo. Since it's they usually score very well, a key part of the game is trying to bingo a lot, but also trying to like, so it's very useful to know seven letter words, but also eight letter words, since if you can play your seven tiles around a letter already on the board, that's also a bingo. So it's definitely very useful to know those words. But it's also useful to find safe letters, like safe combinations of letters that will likely form a bingo. So after you make your play, instead of just thinking about that turn, think about what you're saving for next turn. Think about the letters you're leaving. Like if you leave like something like I, 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 there's a good chance you're not going to have a good rack on your next rack. But if you have something like S-T-E-A-R, which are common English letters and there are a lot of seven letter words with those letters, assuming you know some of the bingos you have a good chance of sorry i mean assuming like you know some basic words there's a good chance you'll be able to play all seven tiles on your next round on your next turn so there's a lot there's definitely a lot that goes into the game and is it rare to score two bingos at that level though because obviously your opponent's trying to prevent you from doing that right it's actually pretty common and oh is it yeah, I mean, there could, there's a lot, there's, there could be a lot of spaces on the board where you can bingo. And the other thing is that your opponent doesn't know if you're going to bingo or not. So while there are some players that can play like very closed boards and like they try and block you from playing a bingo, sometimes that's not always the best strategy. Sometimes it's rather making a low scoring play that really closes the board. It might be better to make like a slightly a higher scoring play that keeps the board open because... Maybe there's also, even if there's an opening there, maybe your opponent won't be able to take that spot. So some people like to play it close and some people are very good who 
there are definitely some very good close close board players. I'm personally not one of them. I definitely prefer open boards. I just seem to do better. That's just part of my style. Yeah, I, I know the words were co-equates and uh, leverates. I believe that's how you pronounce it, which are which are great words. Um, was there a point there where you thought, oh, wow, I'm going to win this thing? Was there a moment where it sort of occurred to you that you were on a real roll? Yeah, so after I played leverates, which was a bingo, there were just two tiles left in the bag. So after I picked those two tiles, I knew the game was almost over, and that put me way ahead. I was like 100 points ahead, and I knew at that point there was no way my opponents could catch up before the end of the game. So, And I knew that by winning that game, that I would win the championship. I'm speaking with Michael Fagan. He is the North American Scrabble champion. Uh, he won that uh, in Baltimore uh, recently with a couple of very big words, uh, bingos, as he's been explaining, and uh, took home a title despite being a long shot really going in. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about his love of Scrabble. I believe it started a long time ago with fridge magnets, like many of us when we first learned to spell words, uh, and some uh, some games with his mom. We've all played with our parents at some point. And maybe just what the difference is between being an amateur player and being a pro. How is it that you see the game differently? That's next. Our guest this half hour is Michael Fagan in Montreal. He is the Scrabble Players Champion um, after winning a tournament in Baltimore over uh, the weekend. A a huge accomplishment for anyone, especially in his case. He went in ranked uh, relatively low. It was a bit of a long shot, but he did have a lot of tournament experience. I gather, though, Michael, that your love of this goes back a long ways, back to the fridge and those fridge magnets that we all used to play with when we were kids. That's right. So when I was three years old, I was just... I was playing with those fridge magnets and my parents like eventually noticed that like I was when I was putting up the letters, I was putting them up in the same order every time that I was just putting them up randomly. But when I realized like it was a pattern, that was kind of a bit of a hint to them that maybe I have some sort of knack when it comes to words. And also my parents were once playing a casual game of Scrabble and like when they left the board out to take a break, why don't would do whatever i started apparently taking the tiles and rearranging them to form the names of some of my classmates at age three that's pretty and you did start playing with your i mean a lot of us have played scrabble with our parents you started playing with your mom uh did it take long before you were winning i mean i think we used to kind of play together when i was really young and then like eventually maybe when i was like 10 i started playing like by myself against my mother i think back then she usually used to win but Eventually, I just started getting like, better at the game, playing casually. And when I was 14, my mother found this club that I joined and been pretty much hooked ever since. You said that it's not just about the Scrabble, though, not just about, clearly you love words, you're good at it, but it's also, there's a social aspect to it as well that is always part of board games. But Scrabble is a really great social activity as well, isn't it? I agree. And actually, in the first half of my life, I was not at all a social person. Now, I remember she found some like social groups for me, like just before Scrabble. And actually, I remember like when I started playing Scrabble, it was just as like some of my social groups were like ending. So I wonder if the timing is a coincidence. It probably isn't. But you really get to meet like a lot of new people of like all ages who share a love for the same game. And you can really meet a lot of new people. And <laughs> You don't have to be an expert to make friends. Some people just fight, like to play the game like it's a social outing. Some people really like to, like, at the higher levels, like to really talk about the game, analyze the game, and discuss it. Because due to the nature of the game, sometimes even the top players don't always agree on what's the best move. Sometimes it depends who the opponent is. Sometimes it depends 
on your playing style. It's not always obvious. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's like the Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you've seen that about chess. There's a lot of strategy involved. What is the difference when you found yourself sort of becoming better and better and now winning? What do you think the difference is between the way someone like you now sees a Scrabble board versus how an amateur sees a Scrabble board? How has it changed for you? I mean, as I got better and like I played more, I learned more words. I also got to learn a lot from people who were better than me. So I could learn things like strategy, some like more, more words. I also got better at like finding plays because like sometimes like the more you do something, the better you get. So I learned like how to find plays over the board more naturally. I also, also like tracking is another thing I eventually learned. That's when you keep track of like which tiles have been played. That's because in a game, there are always 100 tiles with the same distribution. So as the tiles are played, you know, like what's left in the bag. And once the bag is empty, you can figure out exactly what the opponent has. And you can use that to your advantage all out. To, it's all legal, even in yeah. tournaments. Yeah, like card counting, but not really. Uh, do you do you study a lot? Do you work a lot at this? Like, do you prep a lot? Do you study a lot for these tournaments? I do. Some people have reported, including Boy Swift, who was playing against me in the finals. He reported studying eight hours a day for like the month before the tournament. I wouldn't say I study that much, but recently it's like the mix up between like studying new words, playing games, and there's a lot of computer programs where you can type in the, your rack, the board position, and then it makes suggestions. And sometimes you try and figure out like why it's making a specific suggestion, and that can really lead to like maybe thinking like outside the box and thinking on like a, a new level, thinking about it a little bit differently. And sometimes that can really give you insight as to like what's an even better play than what you might think. But also Is like it- analyzing games, what works well, what doesn't work well. So it's not just for me like a mix of that. And I guess over the years, it's really gotten, I've really gotten good. At, it's really helped me. Yeah, no kidding. Because it's not all about the vocabulary, right? It's not all about how extensive a vocabulary you have. I mean, I have to agree, like most other players there, I bet they know more words than me, which is part of the reason I was really surprised to win the tournament. But it's more than just vocabulary than other areas, like skill, luck. I just like, I took, I did like everything correctly. Yeah. Overall, I definitely say I was lucky with the letters I pulled and my opponents probably weren't so lucky with what they got, but it definitely takes more than just luck to win. I know you played in a lot of tournaments. This was, again, your fourth time at this big one. Um, is there any pressure? Do you feel any pressure now? Sometimes winning brings with it responsibility. Sometimes, but I've been a good player for a long time, so I'm definitely like, used to winning. I'm used to like playing games for like money because there are cash prizes. For You don't have to, necessarily, you don't, you don't have to like, win to get a cash prize. Sometimes like, they play like, the top like, five places, or depending on the division size, like the top few places and in tournaments will often have like different divisions so if you're relatively new to the game you probably won't be playing in the top division and if you finish near the top of your division you can still win some really nice cash so that could be a way to encourage people to try out the game yeah and it's still fun for you though you still enjoy playing it you still have when you go and play no matter how much pressure there is or what the circumstances are how much do you still enjoy just sitting down with the bag of tiles and an empty board there's that and sometimes people just like enjoy being in the limelight they enjoy being like streamed everyone can watch the game some people just really like that and yeah. i'm one of those people so for me it was like a not really pressure but like a big honor to get that 
Well, Michael Fagan, uh, congratulations. Good luck in your uh, future tournaments. And uh, yeah, you, you've done uh, you've done Canada proud. <laughs> P-R-O-U-D Thanks. on a triple word score. <laughs> South Sudan may not be a country we talk about very much. In fact, many people may not even know exactly where it is. It's, it's a landlocked country in Central Africa. It has supported by Ethiopia, Sudan, from which it gained independence in 2011 the Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Kenya. Its population is about 13 million. And since 2011, when it gained independence, it has been struggling to find its feet. It entered a long and violent civil war soon after that. A peace deal was signed in 2018, but there's been little sign that it's being implemented. Add to that the impacts of climate change, which have hit that area hard. It is almost all agrarian. And now the war in Ukraine, which is driving up the prices of staples. It is also a country where more and more people, more and more of those nearly 13 million people, are going hungry, facing the real risk of starvation. And now funding has become an issue. The World Food Program, which is on the ground in South Sudan, has said earlier that it is suspending food aid to about 1.7 million people in the country as the war in Ukraine sucks funding from the world's crisis-plagued youngest country. It's also causing the prices of staples to soar, as I mentioned, uh, and that is causing issues as well. On the front lines of all this is a Canadian. She was born in Egypt, but moved to Nova Scotia uh, when she was about nine or 10, uh, was educated there, and then set out and has now worked in many other trouble spots around the world, including Iraq, including Syria. And joining me now is Marwa Awad. She is with the World Food Program in South Sudan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the country, it is a new country, a relatively new country. It's only been independent for about a decade. And uh, what is the situation there right now? And why is it so important to raise awareness about what's happening in South Sudan? South Sudan is witnessing its worst uh, food crisis since uh, it gained independence uh, in 2011. So it's it's a, a fragile nation of 12 million people who are trying to build their lives after independence. Uh, but unfortunately, the odds seem to be uh, tremendous, especially because of the climate crisis that has taken shape and come to the fore very visibly over the past three years. Uh, the country has been um, pretty much flooded uh, for the most part for most of the year because of the increase in rainfall and also the um, the River Nile, uh, the banks of the R- River Nile overflowing. Uh, this has resulted in this unprecedented crisis of displacement where hundreds of thousands of people are constantly being uprooted because their villages are uh, being submerged. Their land is, is swallowed up by, uh, by the water and their crops destroyed precious crops that people rely on. 87% of uh, the people of South Sudan population rely on uh, subsistence farming. So they grow their own food. Uh, and so uh, uh, this has been a uh, qu- quite a vicious cycle of ongoing flooding. Of course, there's conflict. There is a um, very diverse society where a lot of groups and communities uh, try to coexist, but because the country is so underdeveloped, uh, mostly there is this constant uh, competition over resources. 
and the sharing of those resources. And so unfortunately that um, in more in, in many cases leads to uh, the, um, the conflict that you hear about in the media. But this year has been particularly difficult because with the uh, war in Ukraine, uh, a uh, global crisis in food, the availability of food, the, the prices uh, of, of food commodities and, and also fuel, and that has had its knock-on effects on South Sudan. It's yeah. uh, we're we're living in a very uh, tightly knit, tightly connected world. Even the youngest country, South Sudan, where less than two percent of the road network, for example, is 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 paved, which means there isn't a lot of commerce, there isn't a lot of electricity. But even this country, this tiny country, a new country, is being affected by the crisis. Um, in Ukraine. Yeah, as a member of the world, as a representative of the World Food Program, obviously you have a specific focus when you're there. How much more difficult has it become? And I understand that even the World Food Program has had to make some make some tough choices when it comes to who it can provide for and when and how. Yes, we've had to make a lot of tough choices recently because, of course, the uh, the the funds have uh, gone down, unfortunately, and understandably so because so many crises have been. Uh, popping up everywhere, uh, mostly man-made, unfortunately. Uh, and as a result, we've had to uh, do humanitarian triage, which is the hardest thing that any humanitarian or aid worker must do, because uh, the core of our mandate is to leave no one behind. Uh, but because of the the difficulties that we've been facing, being severely underfunded, uh, and at the same time, um, a lot of the crises piling up, and a lot of problems continuing, uh, we've had to make a decision on basically who gets our food assistance and who can wait until more funding um, uh, comes in. How do you, I mean, how does that decision, I mean, who is being left out when you have to make those decisions? It's a very painful decision. Um, we've We've been saying it's taking food from the hungry to feed the starving. Uh, and and this is to to point to the fact that everyone needs help in South Sudan. There is seven point seven million people who are severely food insecure, which means they cannot guarantee their next meal. Of the seven point seven million, there is a core group that cannot survive without food assistance. They would die if we don't reach them on a daily basis. Uh, this is about eighty seven thousand people. Those people we've had to prioritize and we continue to give assistance to. In addition to that, there is nearly 3 million people who are one step away from this catastrophic level of hunger. They are literally just, you know, knocking on famine's door. And so we've had to also uh, prioritize them to continue to, to, to give assistance to them. So currently we're reaching 4.5 million people. Uh, across the uh, the country, and that's down from 6.2 million. So we've had to suspend assistance to about a third of, of the amount of people that we've been reaching, mainly because the funding has gone down and also because the needs keep rising. So you have a situation where funds cannot keep pace with the needs, and the needs are increasing sadly prominently now because of 
the uh, the um, climate crisis, mainly flooding that has swallowed up, I think, about two thirds of arable land in the country. So two thirds of the farmers out there don't have a land to grow food on. Uh, so it's uh, it's very hard. And then to tell those people that um, are not in these severe conditions, but are still struggling because they still live in an isolated area or an area where uh, food prices are very high um, to tell them that, look, we're, we're really unable to reach you and to put your daughters and your sons uh, in school through our school meals program, because your brethren elsewhere are really knocking on famine's door and we need to, to give them that food. Um, it's been hard. I was in the field recently and one woman uh, an old woman who's, you know, you, you can tell she's gone through a lot. She's lived through a long time. Uh, and she she told me, please take me with you. And I told her, uh, I will come back for you. I mean, the, the, the World Food Program is here to tell you we're with you and we're doing our best. Return. And she, but my daughter, if you return, you might not find me. You might only find the trees. And that to me was, uh, you know, extremely profound and also poetic. It just showed me how, you know, the, the, the people there are so attached to their land. But it also made me realize, okay, this is this is really a crisis. And that's why I was saying earlier that this is the worst that the country has, has seen in a very long time. I'm speaking with Marwa, Marwa Awad. She's an aid worker from Canada who's in South Sudan now with the World Food Programme. She's speaking to us tonight from Juba. We're talking about what is a crisis situation many countries are facing, with the both with the climate crisis exacerbating already delicate ecosystems, but also with the war in Ukraine uh, causing the price of a lot of basic goods. In, in the case of, of Sudan, it's maize and sorghum. Uh, the price of those things is being driven up by the higher cost for other grains, uh, prompted in part by the war in Ukraine. When we come back, just a bit more about what can be done to try to help a country like South Sudan and a bit more about Marwa's journey as well. As, as I mentioned, she's uh, been she's from Canada, but grew up in Egypt, uh, then came here and then has been in many other parts of the world, seen many a crisis, but obviously this one, uh, another difficult and profound one that we should know more about. And that's next. My guest this half hour is Marwa Awad. Uh, she's a Canadian aid worker in South Sudan with the World Food Programme. She's speaking to us tonight from Juba. We're talking about... Uh, a very difficult situation right now in what is the world's youngest country, South Sudan, uh, just a little over, over a decade after independence, and how it's struggling uh, to feed its people right now with a combination of both drought uh, as well as flooding uh, and the war in Ukraine driving up the price of everything. Uh, Marwa, what needs to be done in the short term for a country like South Sudan? Because as you well know, having been to so many places, you know, crises have a way of, of displacing each other and crises mm -hmm. then get ignored in places like South Sudan do fall off, fall off the radar and it's difficult to, to, to get people to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Definitely advocacy, definitely uh, making sure voices of the people reach uh, to all the corners of the globe, um, making sure that listeners uh, are aware of uh, the troubles and the struggles and hopes and dreams of the people of South Sudan, of course, and and of other countries as well. I mean, we're we're one big family uh, living together on this planet, and that's all we have. And so, uh, knowing that uh, this young nation, South Sudan, is struggling because of a climate crisis, not of its own making. I mean, South Sudan is 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 
is a very young country and it's it's not industrialized it's underdeveloped so uh the climate crisis is not uh something that the people are aware of or have contributed to and yet they're the they're the ones on the forefront of this uh of of this apocalypse so to speak uh after after um advocacy comes action and i believe that we're seeing this happen uh recently i i was in the field and i took um a lot of uh, uh, colleagues from uh, journalists, and I took them to the field and 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 through their powerful reporting and bearing witness, uh, we got a lot of uh, gifts or donations from people who were just watching uh, these reports. Um, one of them was of this child who has been pulled out of school by her parents because uh, the, she is no longer receiving uh, food assistance which acts as an incentive for the parents to send the child to school uh, because we're, we're speaking, we're talking about very uh, poor families or families who have uh, a, a very limited uh, um, purchasing power. So we, we incentivize them by sending their children to school. And unfortunately, because we had to suspend uh, the uh, school meals uh, program in her school, her parents thought the best thing for her would be to, to get married. And they, uh, she's 14 unfortunately, and she was getting uh, married to a 25-year-old uh, in exchange, of course, for a dowry of 60 cows. And unfortunately, it was heartbreaking to see this because even the cows were so skinny because uh, a lot of the grazing land has been um, flooded and just washed away and the animals don't don't have enough food to eat. Uh, and so that story moved a lot of viewers and 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 we got a lot of feedback of people asking, how can we help? And I really think this is the uh, the most important, valuable thing to highlight is that uh, getting people interested enough to to want to do something, not just for this child, but for any anyone else in South Sudan and across the world. So having that that push and that incentive to to take action is so profoundly needed at this time. Marwa, you were telling me earlier that you you know, you were born in Egypt. You came to Canada when you were fairly, fairly young. Went to school here. Went back out into the world to uh, to make a difference. I would assume, and that's what you've done. You've worked in a lot of uh, difficult places, Syria uh, as well as Iraq. You were in you were in 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 uh, Jordan. Now you're in South Sudan. How do you keep going? How do you? I mean, these are very challenging places, both to live, to work, and to make a difference. Uh, what keeps you motivated, and what keeps you inspired to keep working? I mean, ever since uh, my first deployment, which was in Iraq, I've thought about my privilege a lot. Just the, the the assumption that I always had for safety and the kind of uh, secure lifestyle that I had, the education that I enjoyed uh, growing up in Canada and also in Egypt, and then coming as as a a grown woman uh, and you know and um, a professional to work in a country like South Sudan that's taking its steps towards uh, nation building and nationhood and seeing uh, that that trajectory or journey, it really humbles me a lot and it makes me uh, really want to help and just to leave, to take a part of South Sudan with me uh, when I go and I tell people about it, but also to leave my mark by helping someone or telling someone's story. And, and Marwa, I guess you don't, you have to remain optimistic, right? All through it, all through the challenges. Absolutely. Uh, there is no other way 
uh, optimism is is a must because there is definitely a solution and there is definitely room for improvement. I mean, right now we're seeing a lot of uh, donor countries, countries that are uh, following closely uh, the situation in South Sudan, eager to help and eager to uh, to understand how how different can their help be in the future. So we have emergency assistance, like I was referencing uh, earlier, the uh, emergency food uh, rations that we give, but we also work to build resilience for uh, the populations in the communities. And I was uh, visiting an area in Jonglei, uh, which is one of the, the most underdeveloped areas in, uh, in South Sudan and very badly hit by the floods. And we had a peace building program that ran for the entire year in 2021. And the results were amazing. There were communities that were initially not getting along, but because we moved in, we asked what their their needs were and we provided them with those needs, which were uh, ranging from building community assets, such as water holes so that they have access to water, to um, uh, uh, supporting them to, to rejuvenate their land, or at least the land that's still dry and can be used, supporting them with seeds, things like that, made a huge difference for several communities. And now they have a modicum of stability. So uh, it, it it's definitely, I'm hopeful for the country. And I think that a country where 70% of its population is uh, youth, just young people, really has no way but to be hopeful because there's just so much energy and spirit for uh, a better future. Well, Marwa Awad, thank you so much for sharing your story with us tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Listen, there's a little more than a month to go now before voting ends of the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race with the winner announced on September 10th. It's coming up fast. The third and final leadership debate was held in Ottawa last night with some glaring absences. Presumed frontrunner Pierre Polyev and Leslie Lewis weren't there. They both faced $50,000 fines for not showing up. Polyev instead was at an event in Regina and made it clear he had no problem skipping the final debate, saying there was no place he'd rather be than where he was. Quote, I could have been cooped up in a little hotel room around a small table listening to a defeated Liberal premier drone on about his latest carbon tax idea. He had to say, referring, of course, to Jean Charest. Well, Jean Charest, Roman Baber, and Scott Aitchison took part in the bilingual roundtable event. Charest didn't hold back on his thoughts on the absences of those who weren't there. Roman Baber, Scott Aitchison, and I all agree on one thing. If we are going to unite the party, you have to show up. You actually have to show up. You have to speak to the membership. You can't treat them with contempt. Jean Charest there last night. He didn't name names, but you know who he's talking about. So with the debates now done and voting well underway, is this race all but over? Joining me now is Globe and Mail writer at large, John Ibbotson, the publication's former Ottawa bureau chief and chief political writer. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, Ben. Good to see you. So uh, this final debate uh, unfolded in a pretty fitting way, I would think, uh, given it was a fairly unusual leadership race, pretty acrimonious. And Pierre Polyev's decision to bail, he essentially used that to uh, mock Jean Charest from afar some more. What did you make of it all? Um, I think it was uh, Polyev being strategic. Um, He has this race pretty much wrapped up. On the same day of the debate, 
uh, his campaign uh, announced that it had raised $5 million in the second quarter, which is an astonishing amount of money. Um, he has more than 300,000 uh, people signed up, uh, 312, I think, thousand signed up. There was no profit in him giving John Charest any more oxygen by debating him. Uh, and of course, there was always the possibility that he would make a mistake, do something embarrassing. So he decided to just um, uh, take the, the the risk of leaving it, paying the $50,000 penalty, and thus leaving the stage in the end to just Mr. Shrey and, um, and the other two minor characters, Mr. Babber and Mr. Atchison. Um, Mr. Shrey did a great job. He, he's a very experienced politician. He loves to debate. He's very good at it. But you know, did anybody hear what he had to say? Uh, and did anybody care is the real question. Um, there's a consensus, and I'm part of that consensus, that the only question now is whether Pierre Polyev will win this thing on the first ballot. And the answer is probably yes. Jean Charest had a good line last night about leadership is fighting and showing up. It isn't about running away, but I suppose it all depends on what you're running away from. You're right. In this case, uh, the the political gains for Polyev to take part were probably far, probably far outweighed the... Uh, but the political gains to not taking part would far outweigh those uh, of showing up. Yes, although you know what? There's also substantive truth to what Jean Chenet said. He has shown up for three decades. Um, he took the shattered progressive conservative party, led it back to respectability, then was pushed to go to, to Quebec to take over the Liberal Party in order to confront the powers of separatism. He did that, became uh, Premier of Quebec, won several elections there. Um, he, he said that whenever his party called, his province called, his country called, he answered that call. And in fairness to him, that is perfectly true. He has done those things. There aren't many people who can claim a life of service in Canada, uh, you know, more sustained um, than, than Jean Charest. He, uh, uh, so he had every right to show up on that stage and say, where's this guy who says he's going to beat me? Why won't he show up? Because, in fact, Jean Charest always has shown up. Yeah, I mean, I think Jean Charest has run a, a pretty impressive campaign, actually. Just he seems to have found himself at a time where at least the the, cog, the Tory caucus and and a lot of uh, people supporting Pierre Polyev seem to be wanting something a little a little different. It would seem something a little or even a lot edgier. Uh, yes, something more overtly populist, something less, as people say, Laurentian, uh, less Central Canadian. Um, the real question is. Uh, always the same question. Can the Conservative Party win over suburban voters in Ontario, especially su immigrant suburban voters in Ontario, because there are so many of them. They are dominating in so many ridings. And the answer um, under Stephen Harper increasingly was yes. But then in 2015, Justin Trudeau took them away. Andrew Scheer couldn't get them back. Errol Toole couldn't get them back. Can um, Pierre Polyev's populist message uh, of freedom and just you know uh, abolishing the gatekeepers win them over i think there's a feeling inside the party that with the liberals you know seven years in a bit tired a bit dispirited uh with inflation running high uh with the you know, the economic strains that have come along in the wake of the pandemic uh that the, the liberals are vulnerable and this is the kind of message um that's going to appeal to uh those suburban uh, middle-class um, immigrant Ontario voters. They don't need any more support in the West. They have that locked up. Um, they would likely get support in Quebec, but then it's it's not likely they'll find much. But they can get 
uh, a government, even with a majority government, if they own the Ontario suburbs. And I think there's a feeling inside the party that Mr. Polyev can deliver. Yeah, I mean, this this looks like it'll boil down to a bit once again a big fight over sort of the nine hundred five that area around uh, Greater Tro- around Toronto, the city of Toronto, and uh, and the Lower Mainland to some extent, where the Conservatives took a step backwards in the last election. I mean, I, I've been impressed by how disciplined Pierre Polyev's campaign has been. He's been it's been a very He's stuck to the same messages from the beginning. Uh, there's not a lot of policy there, to be frank, but uh, he hasn't been debating policy. He's been debating emotion to some extent, and he seems to have won that fight. It is a disciplined campaign, and you're absolutely right. Um, there are people on the liberal side who have been warning about Pierre Polyev for months now. One of them is Jerry Butts, uh, the former principal secretary to um, Justin Trudeau. Um, and Butts looked at uh, the fundraising numbers and he said this guy has won a simple disciplined campaign that is all about hoovering up money hoovering up donations hoovering up names uh, on the membership lists and then using that to as he put it talk to the 87 percent of canadians who aren't on twitter um the i think the feeling is that the the you know, for all intents and purposes the leadership campaign is over. We only need to wait for the results on September 10th. After that, the real campaign begins in which Pierre Polyev uh, introduces himself to the country and he will have all the money that he needs to do it. And and quite a bit of time, it would seem, provided this uh, arrangement between the Liberals and the NDP holds on for a few more years. He has some time uh, to grow into the job, doesn't he? Should he win? He does. Now, you know, there are pluses and minuses. Um, inflation is high. Uh, economic insecurity is high. Uh, it's possible that by, you know, two to three years from now, as the next federal election approaches, assuming the you know, effective coalition between the NDP and the Liberals holds, um, that the economy will be better, that prices will have come down, um, that uh, people will be employed, inflation will be tamed, and people will be feeling better about the country. So, I mean, there is an argument that it would be better for him to go early rather than later. But I think their general feeling among economists as well as polit- political watchers is that there are big structural problems coming out of the pandemic and they're not going to go away anytime soon, including uh, by the time of the next federal election. So, yes, I think you make a very good point. He already has a lot of experience in the House as an MP, a bit of experience as a cabinet minister, and he'll have plenty of time now to get his feet uh, firmly on the ground uh, as a leader of the official opposition. Uh, and he will try to make that look like um, a prime minister in waiting. I'm speaking with John Ibbotson. He's the Global Mail's writer at large. We're talking about uh, the Conservative Party leadership race, the final debate last night in Ottawa, not attended by the presumed frontrunner, Pierre Polyev, who decided to head to Saskatchewan instead and say there was no place he would rather be, that he didn't want to be at the debate at all. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about what this means in the short term for the Conservative Party, because going in, there was this idea that the candidate who would assume the leadership would need to bring the party back together. And it seems at least as far as the centrist wing of the party is concerned that uh, Pierre Polyev is not so concerned about that. We'll talk about what impact that could have after this. My guest this half hour is Global Mail writer-at-large, John Ibbotson. We're talking about the Conservative Party leadership race. The uh, voting submission deadline is just a little more than a month away. We'll find out who's won on September the 10th. Uh, all the big money these days uh, is on Pierre Polyev, who seems to have a, a decisive lead in this in this campaign. But uh, Jean Charest is still doing relatively well. Um, going into this, there was a lot of talk about trying to unite the party again, you know, try to make the Conservative Party a bigger tent party again. 
Pierre Poliev seems to have run against that whole notion, and he doesn't seem to be extending any olive branches to uh, to his rivals these days either. Is there any chance coming out of this uh, that there will be divisions within the party that might be hard to mend? There will be divisions in the party, just as there were divisions in the party when Stephen Harper and Peter McKay uh, united the Canadian Alliance and Progressive Conservative Party's way back in 2003-2004. You remember that Joe Clark wouldn't have anything to do with that party. He left it. But enough of the party was intact uh, to take it into a federal election, indeed to win in 2006, and to govern for almost a decade. And I think the case is the same now. The problem that the Conservatives have had is that in order to win the leadership, you have to win the support of the Conservative base. And then leaders like Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole have thought, the next thing I have to do then is pivot more to the centre in order to broaden the tent and to win over undecided voters. But that never worked for them. I thought it's what they had to do too, by the way, and I was wrong, um, because it never worked for them. Voters could see the pivoting. They could see that he says one thing on one day, and now he's saying <clears throat> another thing on another day. All of a sudden, he's for a carbon tax, and they punished them for it. There were other things as well in that last election campaign, especially vaccines. Um, but what Pierre Polyev is doing is saying, look, I'm going to be me. I'm going to run this populist message. I'm going to run this message of gatekeepers, of, of freedom. I'm going to, I don't know why, support cryptocurrencies. I'm going to fire the government of the Bank of Canada, uh, which is a very bad idea, by the way, but that's what he's going to do. And I'm just going to pound this message home. There will be no pivot. And if people, if I, if I bleed a bit of support um, off uh, on the left with liberals, then I guess I will. But of course, there's support over there in the People's Party um, that, that might be available to him. But overall... I, and the people that I've talked to believe that the goal has got to be to get the conservatives out of the party of 30 to 35 percent of the popular vote, trying to get it up to 37, 38, 39 percent of the popular vote. And instead, try to make it a party that's more broad based, that's in the 40s, um, that can that can take uh, that has a much larger available voter pool. And they're doing that by stoking the notions of resentment um, at elites. Um, economic insecurity, inflation, high housing uh, prices, which they all believe are messages that suburban uh, middle-class voters in Calgary and Vancouver uh, and Victoria, as well as in Brampton and Mississauga and Nepean, will find compelling. Yeah, I mean, every time I see one of these more uh, odd statements by Pierre Polyev about firing the Bank of Canada governor, for instance, or his champion in cryptocurrencies and so on, I always remember that John Baird, who's by no means a radical, Jenny Byrne, who uh, was a you know a fine strategist for Stephen Harper, they're behind the scenes here. So a lot of this appears to be pretty calculated. Do you see any weaknesses? Do you, I mean, you've covered politics for a long time. Do you see any weaknesses there for, for Polyev? There are always weaknesses. <clears throat> I remember Preston Manning once saying, the thing that does the politician in isn't the opposite of what made him uh, successful. It's the same thing that made him successful. So what's making Polyev successful right now is a focused, disciplined message, a highly professional campaign team. But is he flexible? Can he adapt to changing circumstances? Does he have the capacity to learn, which I think is the single most important quality in a politician? Or is he going to just be stiff-necked and ramrod straight and push it through? In which case, you know, if, if circumstances change, he might have yesterday's tune uh, when a completely new uh, song is needed. So there are risks, absolutely. But I will say this, and I'll say it with some conviction, Polyev, Pierre Polyev is undoubtedly the strongest character, the strongest personality the Conservative Party has had since Stephen Harper. And I think that's what people are getting to. 
Who do you think the liberals would like to see here? I think the liberals thought they wanted to see Pierre Paulian. They thought they, that he was radical, he was extreme, he was with the truckers, and they would make mincemeat of him. But I think they're rethinking that. People like Scott Reed, people like Jerry Butts are saying, whoa, 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 this guy is for real. He's got money, he's got organization, he has a consistent message at a time when our party is uh, floundering a bit, is, is unfocused. Um, so there's going to be a debate inside the Liberal Party as well. Uh, how do we... Um, contain Pierre Polyev and who is best to contain him? Should Justin Trudeau continue to lead the party through 2025? Does he want to lead the party through 2025? Um, and if he doesn't, and if he shouldn't, then who is the liberal who could take Pierre Polyev on? Because uh, they're going to have that problem themselves to solve. Yeah, that's another good question. Do you think Do you think Justin Trudeau is going to hang on? I've been hearing lots of different people say different things about whether or not he's going to run again. Well, he says he's going to run again. Um, I said during the last election campaign that his heart didn't seem to be in it most of the time, um, and that if he did run, if he did win, uh, he probably would not serve out the full term. I think he was hoping to get a majority government to serve for two or three years and then hand the reins over um, to his successor. That's just a guess on my part. I don't know it, it's, but as I say, um, it's 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 my guess. Um, the question now, he he has this effect of supply agreement with the NDP so he can go to 2025 does he want to and on and, and on on what agenda um, how does he get the airports running again how does he get the passport offices working again how does he get the healthcare system functioning properly again how does he bring down inflation how does he have, make housing affordable there's a lot of stuff on the agenda and, and right now I think there's a growing feeling that the Liberals don't have control of this agenda. The polls are showing the, pop, the Prime Minister and the party uh, are less popular than they've been at any time since 2015. So they've got to ask themselves, uh, how do we arrest that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, going into this, it was said this was a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. Clearly, the whole point here is to win an election. Um, it looks like the battle for the soul is decided, and this is kind of how we're going to where the next elections can be fought by Pierre Polia versus somebody, and it should be a pretty interesting battle. Absolutely, and we know who, and we know where Polia is. And we know he's not going to change. There won't be any pivots. There won't be any sudden surprises to carbon taxes and the like. He's going to be who he is. He's going to exploit economic insecurity and and what he perceives to be or asserts is a tired liberal agenda, and say it's time for a change. Now, liberals are very good at winning elections. They've been doing it through most of the 20th century and part of the 21st. So how do they how do they combat that? They have found ways to do it in the past. The challenge is, what, what, what will that way be? John Ibbotson, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, earlier this year, we shared the story of a 17-year-old Manitoba boy who took his own life just hours after falling victim to an aggressive sextortion scheme online. Daniel Lintz had received a message request on Snapchat from what appeared to be an attractive young woman who then coerced him into sending an explicit image of himself. Within minutes, he was being blackmailed. Within hours, he was dead. The victim of a growing global sextortion scheme that is largely targeting teenage boys. We spoke to Danny's father, Derek, on the show in June, and here is some of what he had to say. You know, we live in a small community. It's a relatively safe spot. There, we don't have much going on, but I mean, this can come in from anywhere in the world. And it happens fast, and uh, it can happen under your nose, and you don't even know about it. I talk to folks, and they uh, tell them our story, and they say, oh, no, we have a good relationship with our kids. And, uh, you know, but they kind of brush it off and you know, that's exactly how I felt about our family. We have 
we're close. Um, you know, we had a good relationship with the kids. You know, there's lots of resources. Uh, like I say, there's lots of resources with counselors. And, you know, he was close with his grandmas. He's had lots of friends. He was close with his sisters. Um, so when they tell me that, you know, I'm close with my kids and I don't really need to worry about it, like that's not always the case. And uh, I certainly would have felt that way myself four months ago, but uh, not so much anymore. That's Derek Lintz there speaking about the death of his son, Danny, following a sextortion scheme that he had fallen victim to. Well, over the past several weeks, law enforcement agencies across this country, the US, Australia, have repeatedly issued warnings to the public about a massive spike in similar cases. And today, new cybertip.ca data from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection shows that adolescent boys are increasingly being targeted, primarily on social media platforms such as Instagram and Snapchat, in what it calls an ongoing sextortion crisis. And joining me now is Stephen Sauer. He's the director of cybertips.ca at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. I mean, we've spoken about this before recently, as a matter of fact, but uh, you have some new statistics out in July that seem to suggest that this is a growing problem. Uh, what have you found and what is it telling you? Yeah, what we're seeing is an unprecedented number of reports coming in related to the sextortion of youth and young adults. Um, so in July, we had 322 victims come in looking for support in this space and intervention, some um, some sort of help, uh, you know, when they're dealing with this type of incident. So I think for us, you know, it really raises alarm bells that there is just not enough being done in this space and that uh, really those who are doing this completely understand how profitable it is. What does 322 compare to? Well, when we look at what we've had in the last, um, you know, over the last couple of years, um, it's certainly quite a jump. So in July of last year, we had 85 reports come through related wow. to this type of incident. And previous to that, it was it was 56 in the previous July. So the numbers have really, really jumped um, over the last few years. And even when we talked before, um, you know, maybe a month ago, we were looking at 150% increase in these types of reports just in that six-month period. So this, again, is just another significant jump. I can see why, because I noticed you use the term crisis uh, in some of the materials you released alongside with these numbers. I guess that's a that's a deliberate choice of words. Yeah, we're, we're I think we're facing an epidemic here for these, you know, for kids. And unfortunately, there really just isn't um, isn't the, the appropriate interventions and assistance in place. You know, when you think about it from the perspective of what's happening with, uh, you know, policing in this space. And, uh, what, you know, obviously the, all the issues with being able to, um, being able to investigate this type of crime, it's really, really difficult for police to get out ahead of this. And then we also have the issue of companies not doing enough in this space to protect their users. And we're seeing that over and over again with, uh, with the, the specific companies that we see on a regular basis involved in this. Yeah, these are often, often I gather, Instagram and Snapchat. These are areas that uh, where teens are known to be, so they're also uh, people know to find them there. One of the things I found interesting about the statistics released is just how many of the cases involved boys or young men. It was a vast majority. That feels like, again, we've spoken about this, but that feels like a real shift that's happening. It absolutely is a shift. Um, I think, you know, the, the real shift we're seeing here is, 
really related to the commercial exploitation side of things. Um, so for young females, what we typically see is that they are targeted by individuals with a sexual interest in them. And uh, they're really looking to gain more imagery or videos from that uh, interaction or that, that extortion incident. Um, so they're threatening the youth uh, to provide more images. But on the flip side, with this type of incident, what we're seeing is that boys are being exploited because they are vulnerable to paying as a result of sharing a sexual image. You know, the, the individuals who are engaged in this realize that there's money to be made off of these kids through these platforms. And, uh, and really, you know, like I said, I think 92% of the cases that we had in July uh, pertain to a boy. So it's, it's a significant amount of um, incidents related to males. And one of the things that you uncovered as well, which I think is probably the very root of the problem is that uh, a majority, 63%, I think you found, didn't report what had happened to them, even to someone they trusted. And that, that shows just how, you know, in, in some ways, just how evil the problem is. I think there's a lot of shame associated and a lot of blaming themselves. You know, when you consider um, some of the the social messaging about sharing images, um, you know, it's it's become quite normalized and it's become part of everyday life. You know, you share a sexual image as part of a relationship. Um, and I think that is really the trick is that once that sexual image is shared, you think it's in a, you know, a consensual relationship or at least in within a closed relationship. Um, but once you share that, you have no control over that. And so I think, you know, often they blame themselves for that initial sharing. And we know that what's happening here is, is that these guys who are doing this are very aggressive, extremely coercive, and they keep pressuring kids in until they will provide an image. Um, and there's really no... Uh, no reason to blame the victim. And that's what we, you know, we really want to get that across to youth is that this is not your fault that this is happening. The, they are targeted in their approaches and they understand your the vulnerabilities of being a youth. We are seeing some different tactics that you point out in your latest uh, latest material with the alongside these numbers. We're seeing, you know, sometimes the targeting could be a little bit different, uh, or at least the targeting could be similar or on similar platforms. But there are different techniques that are being used now. What are those? What what should kids and their parents be looking out for? One of the newer techniques we've seen is this usage of uh, an image of the um, of the child themselves uh, that may be not sexual in nature. And so it is what they're doing is they're taking that image and they're actually um, creating a separate picture. That's a sexual image. So it may be a picture of the face. It may be something that they've taken from their Instagram account um, and they're creating a sexual image out of that um, by posting it onto or pasting it onto, um, you know, a, an adult pornography image then they're sharing that back with the youth and saying that they're going to distribute that saying that they are the ones in that image the other tactic that we're seeing a lot of is or we're starting to see a lot of is this tactic where they actually send a nude image of children to the um to the youth or to the young adult and then they will um They'll, they'll contact the youth and they'll say, well, we're going to report you to police now because this is, uh, you know, this is child sexual abuse material that you're receiving from this person. And, uh, and you're going to be in trouble for possessing that image. 
And you've said that this this happens, and we know this from experience, from the stories we've shared on the show, that it happens very quickly, that this is a very well-oiled machine uh, that targets these kids. And, and it can be, I gather, completely overwhelming. Absolutely. So, you know, certainly we've seen um, incidents occur where, you know, within minutes of the initial contact with that individual that they're already pressuring them into sharing a sexual image, into engaging in a sexual conversation or pushing them to a live stream where they can get them, uh, you know, recorded, um, engaged in a sexual act on that live stream. It happens, uh, you know, within minutes and, uh, and there really is they, they're really, really aggressive in their tactics. So if they see that one tactic isn't quite working, they'll adjust and, uh, and try another tactic to pressure the youth into sharing that image. I'm speaking with Stephen Sauer. He's the director of cybertip.ca at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. They have new numbers out today that show a growing number of specifically young men and uh, teenage boys being targeted for sextortion uh, by schemes. These people can be anywhere in the world. Uh, the number of reports to them to them has grown uh, in July of 2022, up to 322 from less than 100 uh, in July of last year. So really, we're seeing a big jump here. When we come back, just a bit more about, again, what can be done to try to prevent this? What should parents know, too? Because what we've heard over the past is that oftentimes parents think they've had these conversations with their teens, think their teens are well aware of the dangers that lurk out there, but still many fall victim uh, to these schemes. That's next. Stephen Sauer is with us. He's the director of cybertip.ca at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. We're talking about new numbers they have out for the month of July uh, that show that um, sextortion continues to be a big problem in this country. 322 open case files in July alone. That's up from uh, about 85 in July of last year, even fewer than that uh, the year before in July. So really, we're seeing a big growth here, uh, an epidemic, as, as Stephen has, has called it. Many of the cases now involving boys or young men, about 92% of those uh, 322 victims, at least those that we know the gender of. Uh, so it, so certainly when it comes to commercial gain, uh, these uh, scammers or these 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 people targeting uh, people are, are changing their tactics. Uh, Stephen, we've talked about this as well, but what needs to be, first of all, what should parents be looking out for? Because we know that oftentimes parents have had these conversations with their teens. They think their teens know that it's dangerous out there, but still they fall victim to these sorts of uh, these sorts of crimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think what part of the problem is we've we've put all the responsibility on parents and on youth themselves, and we know that you know the platforms that they're engaging in aren't really doing enough to protect their users. Um, so for parents, what I would say is that. You know, you, you certainly want to watch out for changes in behavior, things that are, you know, maybe they've become more guarded about what's happening in their lives, um, especially in their online space. If they're taking their device into a closed bedroom um, and, they, you know, you've noticed that they've had maybe a change in terms of behavior related to that device and they're constantly on it. Um, or they are no longer want to be on that device and it just seems out of the norm for them um, to, to not engage anymore. Those are kind of things that you might want to dig into, have a larger conversation with the youth about what's going on, um, and just try to massage that a bit and, and try to find out a little bit more. The tricky thing here is that things have become so normalized in terms of our online social interactions and and then again, in terms of how we engage in sexual relationships, I think the conversation actually needs to be broader. We need to start seeing change in the social norm 
related to the sharing of sexual images or even non-sexual images, who you're connecting with, um, we need to start looking at uh, how do we better protect our kids by, um, you know, really giving them the tools that they need to, uh, to shut down individuals who are contacting them. So we have some resources on cybertip.ca where we will give parents um, scenarios and situations that they can open conversations with with their parent with their youth to um, to have a discussion about online sexual violence and how that occurs and what that really looks like and so we would encourage parents to take a look at that those resources to begin those conversations I, I imagine it's it can be as simple as don't talk to strangers something that we're taught as very very young yeah. children uh, but th- but that's tough what what should teens know about when they're approached because obviously they're getting barrages of this kind of stuff not always as as nefarious as this but what should they know should they just immediately delete immediately not respond is that the right approach i i certainly think they should be really cautious in how they respond to someone who's reached out out of the blue that they don't know um, either online or offline. Um, you know, the, the, often these connections, like you said, they happen quite quickly um, and there's a lot of pressure. And then really for teens, looking at it from the perspective of how do I get out of this situation without sharing anything? How do I, um, how do I stop this communication? And so giving them some tools, some tactics, you know, it, you know just talking about maybe ending the conversation as quickly as possible. Um, giving them some outs where they say they, you know, they can't, they can't share images or they can't get on camera um, because, you know, the restrictions on their phone, those sorts of things. So I think for teens, we, we really want to emphasize the risk in sharing images online. Um, you know, you lose all control of that material once it's out of your hands. And even in consensual relationships, you still want to be a little bit cautious about who you're sharing with that because that relationship could break down and that image could be shared outside of that relationship. So just just recognizing that there are risks and that there are aggressive tactics that occur and that uh, you, you know, you can go to a, a parent or to a safe adult to um, to help you walk through the situation if something does feel uncomfortable or if you are being pressured. Uh, as a last question, with these new numbers out in July showing such a big jump, uh, again, I imagine the call will be out for regulators, for policymakers to do more here. Absolutely. You know what? One of the things that we're really pushing for is um, for really a duty of care you know, for these companies to ensure that they are held accountable to what's occurring on their networks. Um, and, and what we would like to see is a larger legislative framework around the online harms related to children. So we're hoping um, that the federal government will be moving forward with uh, legislation shortly. We know that they've been through a consultation process recently and that they're continuing that consultation process. But we really want to emphasize that, you know, we're in a crisis here and that there are youth and children that are being left to fend for themselves uh, on these online platforms. And we need to see more accountability from the companies that are, that are providing these services. When we look at what we do in other areas with, uh, you know, certain products that are manufactured for children, there are all types of um, you know, restrictions and, and things put in place to protect those that are going to intersect with them. So toys, for example, have specific, um, you know, regulations in, in this space to ensure that they're not going to harm children. Yet, 
digital space, there's nothing at the moment that will protect children. It's a really a free for all. Yeah, we've really left our teens vulnerable uh, in this space. And it's a space they understand probably better than their parents do. So there's a disadvantage as well, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, certainly we are seeing that that the, the youth know the spaces way better. But we as parents need to start learning a little bit more about what's happening um, and learning a little bit more about those tools so that we can, uh, we can help them navigate it. Uh, you know, what I would say is that one of the things you want to do, especially if you have young children who are just newly intersecting with technology is start the conversations early and make it less formal and more of casual conversations, casual check-ins, just like you would talking about school or talking about friends just trying to see how they're navigating those tools. And then as they're setting up new accounts, maybe you need to go through it with them. And if they're the ones teaching you how to set it up, great, they can do that. But if they don't know how to set it up, you need to learn how to walk through it and assist them in setting that up so that you have the uh, the highest level of privacy and security on that platform as possible. Stephen Sauer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Ben.